I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Chronicle reporters Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani have spent the past year and a half investigating San Francisco's single-room occupancy buildings, better known as SROs. The buildings are a part of the city's supportive housing system, which is meant to help formerly unhoused people rebuild their lives. Many of them face daunting challenges, physical disabilities, mental illness, trauma, and substance use disorders. In their first major SRO investigation published in April, Joaquin and Tricia shed light on the unsafe and unsanitary living conditions inside. And then with all of my health conditions and problems that I have had since I've been up in this place, and my kidneys have started dysfunctioning because of the health conditions up in these places. All these people are in a close environment I have seen so many people die up in here. And then in August, the reporters looked into another challenge facing SRO tenants being evicted for many of the same reasons that qualified them for the rooms to begin with. SRO tenants shared with Joaquin and Trisha that they were returning to the streets without formal safety nets. And it's getting closer to like the time for me to get out. I don't know what's what's next after this month. And I'm sick. Like it's getting to be too much. Today on Fit the Mission, Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani are back to discuss the latest installment in their SRO investigative series. This time, we're talking about an issue that many San Francisco residents have tragically become familiar with, drug overdoses in the Tenderloin and Soma, which have skyrocketed because of the deadly opioid fentanyl. While the city has made some efforts to address the visible issue out on the streets, more than 40% of accidental drug overdoses in those neighborhoods happen indoors, specifically inside those city-funded SRO buildings. The hotels house less than 1% of San Francisco's population, but they're the sites of at least 16% of all fatal overdoses citywide. Joaquin and Trisha are here to explain what's going on, why indoor SRO overdoses have been overlooked by the city, and what can be done to address the issue. Their dogged reporting has already made some impact in the city, We'll also learn how San Francisco leaders have responded to their previous SRO investigations. The most recent story from the both of you is the latest chapter in the Chronicle's investigation into San Francisco's SRO buildings. But before we get into it, I want to highlight the impact of your previous two stories. Trisha, the first investigation revealed the substandard living conditions inside the buildings, and people responded to those findings in a big way. Specifically, San Francisco voters did this past midterm election. Tell me what happened. The biggest impact from our first story, which, as you said, had detailed these pretty bad living conditions that the city is housing some of our most vulnerable people. Immediately after that investigation published, Supervisor Asha Safai revived a proposal to add an oversight commission over the homelessness department. And now that had to be done through a charter amendment, so it had to go to San Francisco voters. And in November, we saw voters overwhelmingly decided to add that extra layer of oversight. And that was pretty notable because this is the second time that the supervisors have tried to put such a measure on the ballot. The first time there was this effort was in 2019 that Mayor London Breed was pretty staunchly against, her reasoning being that it would just add more bureaucracy to the city's response to homelessness. She was similarly opposed this time around, but voters got their say. 
And Joaquin, the second investigation that you and Trisha worked on looked at tenant evictions from SRO buildings. People were being forced back onto the streets of San Francisco for many of the same reasons that landed them in these buildings to begin with. And how did city leaders respond to that second story? Yeah, last week, Supervisor Dean Preston called for a hearing in which the city would scrutinize evictions from supportive housing and and sort of look at what's driving the evictions and and what more can be done to to try and keep people housed. And so that hearing, there's still no date for it, but should happen early next year. At least that's the, the hope right now is what Supervisor Preston said. Well, clearly your reporting has been impactful for San Francisco, and I want to get into your latest chapter of your investigation into SROs. Trisha, everyone knows how big a problem fentanyl overdoses are in the city. We've talked about that on the show many times. And this story looks at that crisis inside the SRO buildings, which are meant to help people struggling with addiction. Tell me, how big is this problem? What we had found was a lot of the city's attention has rightfully been on the city streets. It doesn't take much to see the scope of the crisis in San Francisco. You walk down the street. But what we had found was that there is an outsized amount of people who are actually dying from overdoses that are out of sight and out of mind. And those are the ones who are living in our permanent supportive housing, SROs. And we crunched the data and found that within the Tenderloin and 6th Street, about 40% of overdoses that occurred within that area had been happening indoors. But then we found that many of the resources that the city has been allocating toward this crisis have been toward people who are visible on the streets while largely overlooking those who are inside. And we tell this story largely through the lens of one character named Michael Mallory, and he is an interfaith minister that one nonprofit has literally kept on retainer for about 600 bucks a month to hold memorials whenever someone inside the supportive housing SROs dies. He holds memorials for a whole range of reasons. He's been doing this since 2013. So we've gathered here today to celebrate the life and mourn the death of Michael Atkins. Michael, the great mystery we all face is no mystery to you now. You're well on your way. And within these buildings, you know, people have died of cancer, heart attacks, strokes, etc. But we had found in recent years that more and more he's doing memorials for people who die of overdoses. His whole goal with these memorials is to give these people some dignity at the end of their life. So he'll come into these buildings, which often have pretty bare lobbies. He'll come, he'll rearrange the furniture, and he'll create this sort of makeshift memorial. So I invite you to come up one at a time to pay your respects. There's a photograph here that you can look at. They're really, really simple ceremonies, but they mean so much to the tenants who live around this constant stream of of death. Now, Joaquin, what Trisha is describing here is striking because at the same time, we know that this fiscal year, San Francisco set aside $356 million for the supportive housing system where people are inside dying of overdoses. How much of that budget is being allotted towards overdose prevention? What kind of strategy is in place to keep people inside struggling with addiction alive? 
So yeah, this year, the city's actually been on sort of this acquisition spree. So a lot of that money has gone towards purchasing new buildings. Within these supportive housing SROs, when it comes to overdose prevention, we found overall that the response has been a little too little and, and, and too late. The city is only now requiring nonprofit providers to have comprehensive overdose prevention policies, which mandate the training in how to use Narcan and how to assist people who might be struggling with substance use. They have a peer responder program where they actually train tenants how to respond to overdoses within their building and also just sort of be counselors for their neighbors who might be struggling with substance use. But they're only operating that in eight SROs, and there's about 75 supportive housing ones citywide. And we also found that the city, despite pledging to start tracking overdoses within these buildings, it still does not have a reliable system, particularly the Department of Public Health and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. So in many ways, they are not aware of what buildings might be hit the hardest by the overdose crisis and what places might need the most support. So the scope of this problem is not really known by the city. And now I want to understand who's sort of responsible for this problem. Trisha, something that we've discussed on the past when we've discussed these SRO investigations is that the city hires nonprofit operators to manage these buildings. So does responsibility lie with the city's Department of Homelessness or these nonprofit operators when it comes to overdoses inside SRO buildings? It's important to note that the entire drug crisis that is in San Francisco is not just a San Francisco problem. This is something we're seeing all over the country. There's been this massive, really tragic surge in overdoses. And this can ultimately be entirely traced back to the federal government and a lack of investment there. But at the end of the day, when you're looking at San Francisco and you're looking at our most vulnerable populations, it is our city leaders who have control over the budget, have control of these policy decisions. And what we found is that their response just is not matching the scale of the crisis. And now there's a lot of actors involved here. So you have the Department of Public Health, which is ultimately the one who is in charge of the city's overall overdose response. And then you have the Department of Homelessness, who is in charge of housing this very vulnerable population in these SROs. You find this kind of like split responsibility. That's why we're seeing a bit of a disjointed response. I mean, at the end of the day, as we've said in most of our stories, the Buck does stop with the mayor. She controls these departments. She has the purse strings of the city, and she is the one who can direct a more urgent and robust response, which we have not really seen to this point. When you raise the concern to these nonprofit operators, what is their explanation? Are they asking for something more specific from the city? Yeah, I mean, it's just more resources. Like these are nonprofits who they are at the whims of the budget decisions of the Department of Homelessness, of DPH, of the mayor. And they're really just working with what they have. These nonprofits are largely under-resourced. And yes, there is a lot of onus on these nonprofits to be more proactive, to you know, try even harder to advocate for these resources. But when they are understaffed and overwhelmed, there's only so much that can happen at the same time. We'll be back with Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino in a moment. How could San Francisco address the overdose crisis that's happening inside city-funded buildings? And why couldn't Mayor Lennon Breed's emergency declaration in the Tenderloin fix the problem? Before we take a break, 
Earlier, we heard Trisha describing the work of Michael Mallory. He's the minister who performs memorial services for SRO residents who have passed away. In those services, Mallory passes around a small black book for guests to write messages to the deceased. We wanted to share some narrations of those messages now. They're addressed to SRO tenants who have died from a drug overdose. Rebecca, thanks for giving everyone a smile. I was thinking about the last Halloween party when you put on the cat ear headband and made everyone feel into the party and have a good time. Thank you. Sorry that you didn't get to go back to Hawaii, but I'm sure you're there now. Rest in paradise. Joanna. It's your old friend Scott here. And though we never had a chance to say goodbye to each other, I hope that this will do something to make up for that. You were one of the best friends that I ever had, and I loved and still love you dearly. I miss you so much, but I know you're still watching and protecting. Love, your friend, Scott. We'll be right back. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. I'm back with Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino. Before the break, we heard some messages that were collected by Michael Mallory, a minister who performs memorial services for SRO residents who have passed away. His workload has grown in recent years as drug overdoses of SRO tenants have increased. Let's hear a few more of those funeral guestbook messages now. Sweet Shirley, I'm going to miss you so much. You were the most kind and gentle soul I met. You always had a kind word, and you were a good listener, and so generous. You were a bright light in this world, and made it a better place. Dear Miles, your passing is heartbreaking, and many of us that you left behind are struggling to make sense of why you left us so soon. I will miss you tremendously, and feel so honored to have worked with you and had the chance to know and support you. Be at peace, dear Miles. Susie. Joaquin Palomino, your story notes that Michael Mallory has had to honor multiple people at once in his memorial services because so many people are overdosing inside SRO buildings. I think it's also important to note that these buildings are concentrated in neighborhoods where the drug epidemic is rampant. We're talking about Soma, the Tenderloin. How much of this indoor overdose problem can be attributed to that fact? I mean, it, it certainly doesn't help. So we've talked to many, many, many tenants now, as well as frontline staff members in these buildings over the past year and a half or so. And we've heard sort of time and time again that especially for people who are dealing with substance use disorder, who may be in recovery, trying to stay clean, it can be a really challenging environment because you are oftentimes surrounded by drugs outside the building. And there's also oftentimes drug use inside the building. In the story, we actually focus on one woman Jackie Mason, who really struggled with that. She had drug use issues and just living on 6th Street in that environment, it was very, very hard for her to stay clean. I don't want to be here. Wasn't raised like this. It's taking me down. So I talked to a lot of tenants in a lot of buildings, yeah. and they've said similar things. It's really hard to stay sober it is. in these buildings. It is. It really is. For so me. We've spent a lot of time sort of chronicling 
her issues and her challenges living in this environment. And also we spoke to many of her family members who, who also saw it firsthand. Trisha, a question that might come up for people listening to this is, you know, why not just mandate sober living as a condition of living inside these buildings? Why can't that approach work? Yeah, it's so much more complicated than that. San Francisco has very strongly adopted what is called a harm reduction response to its drug crisis. And the idea of harm reduction is to meet people where they're at and give them the tools and supplies that they need to stay as safe as they can until they're ready to make a change, go into a residential treatment program if it's available, or, you know, also understanding that like that moment might never come for someone and this is how they want to live their life and we're just going to meet them where they're at. You look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the first thing you need is a stable place to live. So San Francisco doesn't want to isolate or, you know, punish people who are struggling and doesn't want to keep them from having what is supposed to be just a basic human right. And so this conversation of creating sober living environments has become quite fraught in San Francisco because it's going against like this basic philosophy that we do have as a city. Now you're seeing the conversation evolved into a more nuanced debate where it's like, okay, well, we have harm reduction and we agree that everyone should have a place to live. But why can't we also offer this like as another tool in our toolbox for people like Jackie Mason, who is just trying to control their drug use? Why are there few other options for someone like her other than a SRO in the Tenderloin where she's around this drug use and she's around this environment. And it's not like an and or thing. It doesn't have to be so binary. But is this something that we can just add into our sort of suite of services that we have? So on this idea of having sober living environments for people recovering from addiction, what are some city leaders proposing? There's really two supervisors that have been sort of the loudest in pushing for this, and that's been Supervisor Asha Safai and Supervisor Catherine Stephanie. So right now, what we found that if if someone does want to live in a sober living environment, the options in front of them seem to just be either entering some kind of temporary rehabilitative program. But there's nothing like the model that we have of permanent supportive housing where there are services and it's not a time-limited living environment where someone can go and not be in an environment where sort of drug use is tolerated. Joaquin, Mayor Lennon Breed famously declared an emergency in the Tenderloin at the end of last year. This is necessary in order to see a difference, in order to reverse some of the deaths from overdoses and the assaults and attacks and other things happening in this community. And as you've pointed out in your story, many of the drug overdoses in that neighborhood have happened inside these SRO buildings. Did that emergency declaration address that fact? The declaration did not specifically target the SROs in the Tenderloin. It had a lot of goals. It was about reducing crime, cleaning up the neighborhood, connecting people to shelter and housing and and drug treatment. But overarching all of that was a desire to reduce drug overdoses and fatal drug overdoses. And so there was this moment, it felt like, where the city was going to really marshal all of these resources and pay attention to this crisis occurring in this community. 
And what we found in our reporting is that crisis is disproportionately occurring inside some of these SROs. You know, despite all of this attention being placed on this issue, the SROs themselves were were largely overlooked. There was no additional resources that went specifically towards them. There was no discussion that we could find about how to reduce the number of fatal overdoses within these buildings. It really focused on the conditions on the streets. So we found over the past year, the city has spent about $20 million to implement Mayor London Breed's Tenderloin Emergency Declaration, and it marshaled the resources of several different departments. The only thing that we could find that was specifically targeted toward overdoses within permanent supportive housing SROs was this project called the DOPE SRO Project that was run by a nonprofit called the DOPE Project, which helps manage the city's overdose response. And at the same time as the city is spending all this money, we found that over two years they've allocated a million dollars toward this project, which in comparison is a pretty meager amount given the scale of the issue. Now, this project in the few buildings that it's been able to be deployed in has been hugely beneficial. There was one woman in particular, Susan, who lives at the Minna Lee Hotel, and she said when that whole program had come into the building, it just totally changed the vibe. People were able to be more comfortable and open about their drug use, and she alone has helped save three or four lives over the last year because her neighbors knew that she was the one who had Narcan and she was trained on how to use it. Um, so we found that this is a really effective program. Um, you know, these anecdotes that we've heard from tenants uh, and some of the nonprofit providers were also backed up in a, in a study by UCSF showing that this is a pretty effective program. So Joaquin, does that mean scaling up a program that Trisha just described is sort of the simple solution here? Is it about just making sure SRO building staff are trained in life-saving responses like using Narcan? Would that make all the difference? The solution here is probably going to be very, very complex and multifaceted because, I mean, this is an epidemic that is really devastating a lot of these supportive housing buildings, but also the city at large as well. And so it is one component. I mean, it is one thing that we have heard from city officials, from nonprofit housing providers, from the tenants themselves, that residents are often the best responders to overdoses. And so it, it is a really important thing. I mean, I, I don't think it will solve this problem alone. And so some of the solutions are things we we have talked about in our past investigations. So it's, you know, improving the staffing levels. So you actually have uh, more people on site who can help connect the residents who are ready and are willing to treatment if they want it or, or to help them connect to other services. Uh, it's ensuring that there's Narcan, which can reverse opiate-related overdoses in all of the buildings and that it is readily accessible in all of the buildings. And more broadly, it's it's just ensuring that the city has the appropriate level of treatment for people who want it in the city because we've heard anecdotally that sometimes it can take a long time to get into residential treatment program if you want to go. And more broadly, it's it's addressing these like larger systemic issues that have 
plagued the city's response to the drug crisis for years. You know, it's it's adding more treatment beds. It's making a more seamless system where someone who is ready to go into drug treatment can get in at that moment and actually have something called treatment on demand in the city. And it's also just changing the city's whole ethos toward how they view supportive housing. And also when it comes to, you know, the services that they're provided, it's just been a system that has just been understaffed and under-resourced for so long. You know, the mayor, after our first story came out, did allocate about $60 million to increase staffing levels and increase salaries. So we'll see what kind of difference that makes. But yeah, it's not a simple problem. And hopefully we start to see the tide changing on that. Now that this is the third big investigative story that you've done together looking at SRO buildings, I also just want to know what has been the response from SRO tenants? What have you been hearing over the past year of talking to so many people and seeing the impact of your stories? A lot of the tenants we talk to, the things that we hear over and over and over again is is they feel like no one is listening to them and no one is taking their problems seriously. I do want to say, like, the frontline workers, I mean, they have incredibly hard jobs and, as Trisha mentioned, are often paid very little. We've heard from many of them also they're happy just to see this out in the light so that people know what it is like in these buildings and how challenging it can be to work in them and to live in them at times. So the response from, you know, the people living and working in the buildings has, has by and large, been been really positive. I feel like people feel like their concerns are being heard. Mm. Well, I share their gratitude for both of your guys' reporting. Trisha, Joaquin, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino are investigative reporters at The Chronicle. To find their latest story on drug overdoses happening inside San Francisco's SRO buildings, visit sfchronicle.com slash SRO overdose. It's also on The Chronicle app. There you'll also find the first and second installments of their SRO building investigative series. Before we go, Joaquin shared the story of Jackie Mason, an SRO tenant who had trouble staying clean while living among so many drug users and dealers in the Tenderloin and on 6th Street. Jackie shared her fears with Joaquin. I have 12 grandkids, and none of them came and visit me because I don't want them to be scared. When Joaquin asked Jackie what she wanted to be done about her unsafe living conditions, this was her response. The building, I don't want them to do anything but just help me to get out of here. Other than that, I don't want no promises that you guys can't keep. Jackie Mason died in 2021. She was found in her room by her building manager after not returning her daughter's calls for days. Here's something that was written in the book at her memorial. Such a big smile. Such a bright aura. Always kind words. Always so beautiful and and full of love. You will truly be missed, Jackie. R.I.P. Andrea. Thank you to Andy Reinhardt and Isabella Mello for narrating the funeral guestbook messages. Thanks also to King Kaufman for editing this episode, to Gary Baca for the production help, and to you for listening.